are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode, To Stop or Not to Stop, Management of Acute and Chronic Pain in Patients on Buprenorphine. This is a tricky topic, Paula, and something that we encounter on, if not a daily basis, a weekly basis with our patients. What do you do when you have patients with, number one, acute injuries, perioperative pain, and then chronic pain who are on either long-term buprenorphine, either high doses or low doses. And so we will talk about that. What do you do in these situations? So Paula, give us just a little bit of a history about just the mu opioid receptor, why this is important when we're using buprenorphine. Sure. Yeah, this is common and it's really relevant because a lot of people with opioid use disorder have pain. And we can actually talk about the statistics of that, whether this was primary or secondary, whether the pain came first and the opioid use disorder came from having pain that was treated with opioids and then an opioid use disorder developed, or whether patients who already have an opioid use disorder then develop some kind of a chronic pain syndrome. And we know that people with opioid use disorder are more likely to have chronic non-cancer pain. Um, so like you said, let's back up and look at why opioid are problematic in general and how they relate to the treatment of pain. I'm referencing an article written and published by Nora Volkow and Thomas McClellan in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of 2016. It's an excellent article. Um, it's titled Opioid Abuse and Chronic Pain, Misconceptions and Mitigation Strategies. It's a great kind of article, especially if you have medical students or residents or other learners to give them a good baseline, but they basically just explain how opioid medications work and why they can be problematic. So opioid medications work as a pain as pain relievers by binding to mu, mu, mu opioid receptors in the brain. Um, these mu, mu opioid receptors are concentrated in the brain in areas that regulate pain perception, which makes sense, right? So these areas are the thalamus, the cingulate cortex, the insula, the periaqueductal gray. However, they also um, are densely concentrated in pain-induced emotionally responding areas of the brain and brain reward regions. So this is why opioids are unique relative to other analgesics. Instead of just only regulating pain perception, they also have an effect on an emotional response, and that's because they're concentrated in the amygdala. And if you remember back to neuroanatomy, the amygdala has a lot to do with fear, which is very interesting. And then they're concentrated in brain reward regions, especially the ventral tegmental area, or the VTA, and the nucleus accumbens. And we all know anyone who's done a little bit of addiction medicine or addiction training, neuropsychiatry, neurology, we know that that is the hotbed of reward. So any kind of drug of abuse falls through and hits and lights up the VTA and the nucleus accumbens. And this is why opioid medications do both things for some people. They both can relieve pain and 
cause reward and a pain-induced emotional response that reducing fear, reducing anxiety because of the action on these parts of the brain. So this is important because as we have patients who are treated with uh, buprenorphine, and we're only talking about buprenorphine today, we could have a whole nother section on methadone, but we've decided to keep it just uh, targeted towards buprenorphine for this episode. They have some partial agonism at the mu opioid receptor, and Darlene's going to go into this more. But when we think about adding short-acting opioids, you're going to light up that um, emotional response and those reward regions that may have been overactivated um, previously with opioid use disorders. We have to be very careful and mindful that we don't trigger people back to reuse. And we also need to remember that this is the leading pathway to some people's brains that are vulnerable to an opioid use disorder. Not everybody, but some. There's also interesting correlations between the prevalence of chronic pain and patients with substance use disorder. And this was published in the Drug and Alcohol Dependence Journal of 2020 by author John et al. And they looked at a sample of patients with the prevalence of chronic non-cancer pain, and they found that 46% of the population had some kind of chronic pain. And the prevalence of substance use disorder was 11.2% in that population. And the majority of the patients with a substance use disorder who had chronic non-cancer pain had an opioid use disorder. So that was the most common type of um, substance use disorder. They also found that more females than males have um, complained of chronic pain and that the presence of chronic non-cancer pain was associated with more mental health um, disorders and chronic medical conditions uh, than uh, people who don't have chronic pain. So I think that's some interesting data. And we also know from another article written by Morasco et al. published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2011, that 20% of chronic non-cancer pain patients um, who have prescribed chronic opioid therapy had a prior diagnosis of substance use disorder. And patients with substance use disorder are more likely to have pain and psychiatric conditions. So there's just some numbers for you and understanding that this is a highly correlated um, back and forth condition. And uh, we need to be, we are aware of it and we need to be careful how we proceed and make sure we're not under treating pain, but that we're also not putting people in harm's way. Just some more background on buprenorphine as it relates to pain. So again, we have talked about use of buprenorphine and when we are managing patients with opiate use disorder but this is specifically relating to buprenorphine and that molecule when we are specifically trying to treat pain. So there's a, just a couple of properties about this that sometimes we don't always just think about. And there was a review article, and this came out in December of 2020 in the General Internal Medicine Journal and called Treating Perioperative and Acute Pain in Patients on Buprenorphine, a Narrative Literature Review and Practice Recommendations. And this is by Megan Burrett. This was a good review article that went through multiple case reports and studies because there's not a lot of what we would call randomized controlled studies and trial comparing this, comparing really buprenorphine to other treatment options and are what we would call standard options. And so we really do rely heavily on case reports. Uh, a, even though this was approved 
in the U.S. in the early 2000s for the treatment of addiction. So that's remember when our data waivers came out. This was originally developed and used for pain management as early as the 1970s. So that's so we typically dose this when we are looking at preventing withdrawal and drug craving. Our usual protocols are once, sometimes twice daily, but then in general, the analgesic half-life is shorter than the drug half-life. So it is dosed every three, it is dosed three to four times daily, and you get a better analgesic effect because of that. We do know that you have more than just mu opioid receptor activity. If we remember that this also binds into the kappa opioid receptor and has an antagonist, so we have antagonistic property, so at the kappa receptor. And what's interesting about this is that antagonism is thought somewhat to be helpful in reducing opiate hyperalgesia. This is why when we take them off of full opiate agonists and put them on buprenorphine, you see this reversal of this opiate hyperalgesia. Haven't you seen that, Paula? Absolutely. And that's so interesting. I think we all we learned that somewhere along the way in our training, but I forgot. And that makes so much sense. And the kappa receptor is responsible also for some of the antidepressant effects of buprenorphine. Yes. But that's really fascinating. And I've had people ask me, well, because you talk to patients about hyperalgesia and the risk of hyperalgesia, and that's why they may be feeling worse um, in terms of chronic pain with their long-term or chronic opioid use. And they asked me, well, why wouldn't that happen with buprenorphine? And so now I have the answer to that. So thank you. Yeah. There were nine case reports and two nine case reports and two case series with a total of 17 cases that described, and this is particularly perioperative, perioperative pain is what we're talking about right now. And 15 of the cases, buprenorphine was continued and adequate pain control was achieved. Discontinuing the buprenorphine was only requ required in three of the cases, and they noted and that multi multi multimodal management and titration of medication, including regional blocks and adjustment of buprenorphine doses, were used in those cases as well. Two of the cases, buprenorphine was discontinued three to five days preoperatively, and and it was difficult to achieve adequate pain control in the perioperative period. And yeah, no I, kidding. I would <laughs> no agree kidding. with that. That's mm -hmm. been absolutely our, our experience as well. Because if you think about that, well, sorry, I'm cutting in, but no, you're absolutely. not only not treating, you know, you 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 have then a deficit where patients who have actually a very high opioid tolerance, because remember that buprenorphine is highly potent. It's a partial agonist, but it's highly potent. So if patients are required or told to stop their buprenorphine completely three to five days before surgery, and then they have surgery, not only are they having post-operative pain, they're in a deficit and they're actually in a withdrawal state. So you have to overcome the withdrawal state 
and then treat their pain. And most patients with opioid use disorder actually are more sensitive to pain and require higher doses anyway. So then you end up having to massively dose patients and and um, some providers don't understand why the patient is requiring so much medication when it, t- it makes sense. And then still they don't feel well because of the relative potency and equivalency of their buprenorphine to morphine equivalent. Absolutely. I don't think it, I think it was actually a different article, but there was one, I think it was from the Journal of Anesthesia, talked about, in, and this was particularly in postpartum, peripartum and postpartum women and pain control for women managed on buprenorphine. And in those case reports, it was quite interesting. The ones where they had the most difficulty with pain management, and it was found that this was not just in people and women maintained on buprenorphine, but smoking was a factor. And so they found that the ones that were requiring higher higher doses and then ended up requiring more analgesia were positive smoking. Now, we do find that sometimes in the our buprenorphine-maintained populations, you do sometimes have a higher amount of nicotine use. And so that can sometimes be a confounding factor that we really need to screen for in that perioperative period and really encourage our patients that this is something that is within their control. So I thought that was a really interesting finding in that. And again, these are case reports. These aren't large studies, but that was interesting that that was found across several cases. That is so interesting. And and you and I both know and are that most a lot of surgeons are requiring cessation from nicotine products before they will operate on elective surgeries or scheduled surgeries. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with healing. Yes. Wound blood healing, flow. blood flow. Yes. But I think it's fascinating. And I didn't realize that there was a um, published uh, correlation between tobacco use and pain. pain. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another reason to support your patients in tobacco or nicotine cessation prior to surgery. So that's fascinating. Absolutely. One other, and I'm trying to find my reference so I can give credit, but there was another really interesting, and I think this was from, this was a little bit older study from 2018, and this was from, I think, the, I think this is also from the Journal of Anesthesia. And this came, this was from White, White et al. And it would talked about the efficacy and adverse effects of buprenorphine in acute pain management, a systemic, a systemic review and meta-analysis. And it showed that their, in their, in their reports, that they did, uh, they did do a comparison between morphine and buprenorphine. And so this was in the in the emergency room is what they were looking at. And so what they did is you had patients who were either randomized to just re- for acute pain and they were given either morphine or giving buprenorphine and there was no difference in pain management scores. And those. So I thought that was also interesting that sometimes we have our patients who have high fear about I'm on buprenorphine and what's going to happen to me if and if I have an injury or if I have pain, I'm going to be in horrible pain. And we 
we actually can still manage you. You're, you're actually going to be okay. So now let's get to that. Let's look at some of these protocols. So I think the one that most people are probably most familiar with, there's one by Ann Lemke, and this is patients maintained on buprenorphine for opiate use disorder should continue buprenorphine through the perioperative period. And this was in the pain, pain was this pain medicine or pain management journal? I I think pain yeah. medicine, I think Anna. And then Anna Lemke has done a lot of teaching on this and has been yeah. published in other places. But I think this was an editorial that was written in pain medicine okay. uh, journal. So this is from the pain medicine journal in 2019, in March of 2019. So most people are probably very familiar with this. But the basics of this protocol is first, in general, most patients... I know when we first, very first started this in the early 2000s, there was a lot of this fear of that mu opiate receptor blockade and patients would be instructed to stop their buprenorphine sometimes a week prior to surgery. And then it created exactly what you just described earlier, Paula, the situation of one, you have a patient in opiate withdrawal and also they're still highly opiate tolerant. And then now we have acute pain. And in general, they just did not do well. So the general protocols are to not discontinue their buprenorphine. If they are on doses less than 8 to 12 milligrams, you continue their same dose. And often, many times, you can just can you can just adjust their dosing schedule and even in just increase their buprenorphine and dose it like we talked about earlier to achieve the analgesic effect of buprenorphine. So dose it TID or QID, so four times a day, three to four times a day. So for example, if you have someone who is currently stable on six milligrams and we are anticipating a surgery, they continue their same dose of six milligrams up until their day of surgery. They continue their six milligrams the morning of their surgery, their post-op period. You can increase them even up to six milligrams every eight hours and or even six milligrams every four hours, depending on their type of surgery and the anticipated pain. So it depends on, again, what what is the typical pain management and what you would expect. Obviously, we always support a multimodal approach. So using regional blocks and NSAIDs when appropriate and typical ice and movement and things like that would that would support like continued recovery. So that's the one approach of just continued of maintaining. The second approach that you all, obviously the patient has to have informed consent. And, and many patients are very like hesitant to go on opiates. And so I think that's why some of those protocols work is being able to just adjust their dosing. If you have a patient who is on a higher dose, and this is something we were just talking about. So let's say you have somebody who is currently maintained on 20 milligrams or let's say 24 milligrams. Then in Analemke's protocol, it recommends 
three to five days prior to their scheduled surgery, we're reducing their dose down to eight to 12 milligrams. So now we have a little bit of room on those receptors to add additional pain medication as necessary. And we would expect that. Your same dose up until those those last three to four days, reduce their dose. And you can do it gradually if you have a patient who has high fear and a very emotional response on surgery, then you can add, if you need to add opiates, you can add opiates, you can add morphine on top of the buprenorphine that's very common. That's probably one of the most common inpatient medications that we will sometimes add. And typically, most patients, frankly, this is only for two to three days. Very rarely have I had a patient require any additional opiate support beyond that. And then they are typically resumed on their maintenance dose of their typical stable dose of buprenorphine. Then some of the older protocols, and I think this was really before we had the microdosing, is then they would have you stop and but typically this would be right before surgery and then treating them with full opiate agonists and then before discharge resuming their dose and these protocols were typically discussing letting the patient have mild to moderate withdrawal in general we don't do that anymore because we have the protocols to do what we call ultra low dosing or more people might be familiar as micro dosing and resume that, especially when you have somebody who's just experienced acute pain or in recovering from surgery, we don't want to put them in withdrawal. And there's really good data supporting. We don't need to do that. No, I mean, I think there's a lot to be, there's, there's more talked about now than there was even five years ago. And hopefully hospitals have procedures that are patient centered around continuing buprenorphine and honoring patients with opioid use disorders, you know, choice to remain on their buprenorphine and choose, you know, their treatment with full agonist opioids. And if they need them, that they are given appropriate doses. So I think we talked about this, that um, underlying tolerance will necessitate higher doses of short-acting opioids if patients do need treatment with um, full agonists. So one, because buprenorphine is a blocker. So if they've maintained on any amount of their buprenorphine, they have some level of blockade of the receptor. And two, they have high tolerance. So when I talk to surgeons, I encourage them, like, even though this seems kind of scary, instead of writing for five to 10 milligrams of oxycodone, you probably are going to need to prescribe this person 15 or 20 milligrams or even more as a PRN dose for pain. And I just had a patient actually who had, who had a very painful procedure and, um, it's a procedure none of us would want. Let's just put it that way. And he, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't know he was even having the surgery. He's very kind of shy and quiet about it. He didn't increase his buprenorphine dose. He stayed on it and he was written. I mean, the surgeon didn't really know, I think, but she wrote for him to get five milligrams of oxycodone, you know, Q six hours PRN after his surgery, which is appropriate for that surgery. But he was miserable. He was miserable and he probably could have used five or six times more of that. So whether you choose to follow Anna Lemke's 
um, protocol or this other protocol where you kind of determine what how to level up the pain management based on if the patient has moderate to severe pain or mild pain and also what kind of procedure they're having the general guideline is keep them on their buprenorphine and then treat the, you know split the dose of buprenorphine up and increase it to cover for pain and then use all other modalities like Darlene said with non-opioid analgesics and blocks and then also offer as the treatment provider and the advocate for the patient to talk to the anesthesiologist and the surgeon and offer your help so that the patient feels like there's a warm handoff and that, that you're going to be involved in the care. And also be alert. The last thing I'm going to say, since I'm just basically repeating what you said so eloquently, is that surgery and post-operative pain management can be very triggering for patients. And so you want to guide them through this and ask them what they want. They may have a huge fear of being undertreated for their pain and having the experience of medical stigma and not being treated appropriately previously because they have a diagnosis of OUD. So you want to talk them, talk to them about that and hopefully reassure them that their pain will be treated because it's a basically a human rights violation to not treat someone's pain based on a diagnosis, right? And secondly, honor people who are really nervous about being on full opioid agonists and advocate for them, say, speak up, let your surgeon know that you don't want full opioid agonists, that you want everything else done and that it's possible. Then I had this crazy story and I don't think he'll mind me sharing this, but my nurse, who's just incredible, he works in my clinic with me. He's in recovery from opioid use disorder and he's stable, but he was telling me that he recently went to the dentist and the dentist was basically insisting that he have a prescription for opioids. And he kept he kept telling the dentist, "No, I I'm in I'm I'm in recovery from opioid use disorder. I don't take opioids pretty much ever. I don't want anything. If you want to write me a prescription for ibuprofen, you can." And this dentist handed him a prescription for Percocet. And he's like, I told that dentist like five times and I'm kind of picking on the dentist, but he's like, I couldn't believe it. He handed me the paper and I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't have been more clear. So we get to advocate for our patients. We get to empower them to use their voice to be really clear and know what they get to ask for so that they get appropriate care around their surgery. And also we get to be flexible. You know, patients end up on a PCA and we have to work with the pain, you know, the pain services are hopefully are getting more well-versed with buprenorphine as well. I think they are because buprenorphine is becoming more common, but this is a great review, Darlene. I love it. No, and I think that's really helpful. Some other just helpful resources, there is a PCSS article, and this came out last March in 2023, treatment of acute pain in patients receiving buprenorphine. And this is just a great succinct article on just everything that we just talked about. So this goes through what do you do when you have anticipated surgeries elective? Now, what do you do when you have unanticipated pain? So we'll just briefly touch on that. So this is someone coming into the ER or they're coming into your clinic and they've got you know, broken bones, the dental emergencies, what you just brought up, Paula, that that's probably the number one call that I get to my clinic with patients coming with that. So, but major traumas, kidney stones, super common, those things come on, you know, come up all the time. So if this is severe pain, like major trauma, like, so what this, what this article recommends is, you know, first, Determine when was their last dose of buprenorphine. 
acute trauma, then it says consider all your options. You know, we have regional anesthesias. Obviously, what we've already talked about, increased dose of buprenorphine. We talked about that buprenorphine can be good. And then if that's not working, then we need to look at using high potency opiates. So that's when this is again going to be not in our office. This is going to be the hospital emergency setting. So things such as fentanyl and then providing again, alternate opiate agonist treatment. So during that treat period. So if somebody can't be maintained on their buprenorphine, would it be more appropriate to put it on something more longer acting like even methadone? that was for their pain management, something like that. Opiate analgesia, if you need something, again, it goes through that same pattern of if you have somebody where we have maybe two or three days, they come in with acute trauma, femur fracture, we're going to be doing surgery the next morning. You can reduce the buprenorphine, 8 to 12 milligrams, even just a day to a day and a half prior to the anticipated need for analgesia. So you don't need this three to five day window always, even so, even though that can be preferred in scheduled surgeries, but when you have emergency surgeries or emergency dental procedures that are going to be done and you think that we're going to need some additional pain relief, then just titrate that dose. Down. Like you just said, Paulo, know what would be the usual, like, pain relief effect that somebody would need and help them adjust that. So we know like, okay, in, in this, like, what is the usual pain management for an appendectomy? What is the normal pain management for a bowel resection? And how do we need to adjust that? And and then again, like, I love that we always, I always have just a standard letter that I write and send when I have two surgeons and be, make, make sure my patients are aware that hopefully they're communicating with us. It is really important then just same with these patients, if we are using high potency, especially things like fentanyl, or if you're transitioning them onto any full opiates in these acute settings to watch for possibly oversedation. Some people can quickly become oversedated, especially when you're combining buprenorphine and opiate analgesics. So that is in both settings, whether you're dealing with an acute or somebody in, a, in just even a planned surgery. So that's a really important piece of advice. So they need close monitoring. And then if you do have to take them off, it's the same protocol as just making sure that you, when you're reinitiating, use a good protocol to reintroduce them. All right, let's get into then the chronic pain management. And this is probably sometimes the most difficult and trickiest that we can sometimes run into, but far more common. Right, Paula? So I think it is worth discussing. And all of our colleagues out there, we have, we're all, we're all treating it because our patients, this is just something that they're suffering with. So there's a lot of, there's lots of resources and lots of good resources. SAMHSA has two, I think, excellent resources, managing chronic pain in adults, with or in recoveries from substance use disorders, and that's available at samsa.gov. And then there's also TIP 54, which is the same thing. So 
an entire just tip on on all of this. So both of those are at SAMHSA.gov. And then there's multiple articles. So Paula, do you want to tell us a little bit about those? So chronic pain management in patients with opioid use disorder. I think the main the main thing to remember is we need to address the pain and we need to treat the addiction. So just remember those things. You can't neglect either of those two. Always keep in the forefront of your mind that non-opioid pharmacological therapies are first. And you know, there was just an article just barely published right this month on opioids yet again failing to be first line for the treatment of low back pain. This is for people without any substance use disorder. So we know that opioids um, are desirable by a lot of populations, but they're not the best choice for chronic non-cancer pain. So when you have a patient who has an opioid use disorder, you want to approach their pain. Think of all the spokes on a wheel that you could possibly use to address their pain. Are they on an anti-inflammatory? Which one is appropriate for them? What's the appropriate dose? Have they been warned about the side effects? But I'm always interested that so many patients have never been offered different trials of different NSAIDs if an NSAID is appropriate for them. And going through all the different NSAIDs one by one, just like you would like an SSRI to find the right fit for patients, making sure that you are aware of the side effects. Are they on an SNRI or on a tricyclic, especially if they have uh, non-structural pain? Those kinds of medications that modulate norepinephrine and serotonin can be very helpful for neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, migraine migraine syndromes. And those tend to be quite common in patients with opioid use disorder. So if you're trying to treat uh, depression and anxiety anyway, would you not consider something like duloxetine or one of its um, cousins in the SNRI family? Um, Think about having them on an anticonvulsant if they've got, again, pain from a neuropathic source, uh, because this can be, these can be helpful. Again, you want to be careful of which one you use. Um, something like valproic acid or even topiramate, things like that can be very helpful. Um, gabapentin obviously is a classic anticonvulsant that's used pervasively for pain. We did a whole article, a whole episode on gabapentin and opioid use disorder. So refer to that because gabapentin and gabapentinoids in general, so pregabalin are not without risks, especially in combination with opioids or opioid agonist therapy. And also just remember, and this is from SAMHSA, this is from the article Darlene referenced, the managing chronic pain, be very, be wary of muscle relaxant use in your chronic pain patients with OUD. Just remember that muscle relaxants are pretty much never indicated long-term unless you have someone with some kind of a spastic, chronic spasticity. And um, in that case, you know, this is a different conversation. But in general, if you have a patient who has low back pain or some other kind of musculoskeletal pain who's requesting month after month refills of a muscle relaxant, they often potentiate opioid therapy such as methadone or buprenorphine and can be very addictive in and of themselves. So really stay clear. I just got a message today in my EMR about a really great family medicine doctor in, in the hospital I work with asking me, I have a patient who's treated by you for OUD who's asking me for muscle relaxants. What do you think I should do? And we had this whole conversation. So, you know, don't forget topical analgesics when you're approaching pain uh, for people. And then also all of the non-pharmacological things that have efficacy, um, like psychotherapy, 
exercise such as yoga and Pilates, especially for the treatment of um, low back pain and also migraine. Uh, and then also there are things that have good evidence for the treatment of non-chronic pain. In fact, cancer and non-cancer pain, such as music therapy, mindfulness meditation, acupuncture, even aromatherapy has evidence to to um to benefit people. So I know we do this, but keep them in the forefront for all your patients, but especially your patients with opioid use disorder, because it's even more important that you try and give patients as much responses, as much support as possible. And also, I, I don't know about you, Darlene, but I find the more I practice, and I'm definitely not, you know, an old physician in terms of my career, but I think I've practiced for long enough now that I just see this pervasive trend and linkage of trauma to chronic pain. And I'm talking about emotional trauma. And we know that patients with high ACE scores are much more likely to have chronic pain syndromes in their adolescence and adulthood. And we can't ignore that. And I think as a medical profession, some of us anyway, not everybody, I think like PM&R doctors, they, they're really aware of this. And But a lot of us don't know how to deal with it. So we understand the association, but we don't know how to address it. I think we as addiction medicine doctors need to dig into that a little bit more and use our mental health colleagues to help us. But I reference the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score all the time with my patients and talk to them about how you know, emotional grief, emotional pain, trauma from childhood, trauma from adulthood can manifest as true pain. I'm not undermining their pain. And that oftentimes we need to go back. We need to address the trauma. We need to address the emotional pain. And sometimes the body will respond and people will actually be in less pain if they're less stressed and have less um, to deal with. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but I I had to bring it up because I, I thought it was I think it's important. And so don't undertreat pain. Again, Darlene said this, you can increase buprenorphine, even if it's temporarily. I do this all the time. If I have someone who comes in and they're having a pain flare, so say, you know, they have RA or osteoarthritis, that's particularly bad for some reason, or fibromyalgia, and they're having a particularly bad month, will temporarily increase their buprenorphine, split the dose up to TID, with a plan to reevaluate. And then if they come back in and they're like, you know what, I'm doing a lot better. Maybe they've employed mindfulness or walking or swimming and they come back in and they're doing better. We slowly decrease it again and see how they do. And the same with methadone. Again, of course, you can increase methadone to account for pain as well. So that that's some of the things I do for chronic pain. And again, I'd say one last thing is you got to support patients with chronic pain and opioid use disorder. It's often complicated. And like I said at the beginning, it's a chicken and egg story. Uh, But patients with addiction often feel neglected in their pain. And they've been, you know, neglected, and they feel unheard. And so hearing people continuing to work with them on their pain, address the underlying issues of hyperalgesia, trauma, um, other stresses that may be contributing, and then offer them all the spokes of the wheel, including integrative therapies that are evidence-based. And don't give up. Keep saying whatever. We'll keep working on it. We'll just keep working on it until hopefully you're functioning better, not necessarily have a lower pain score, but that you're living your life more in alignment to the way you'd like to live it. No, I think that's excellent, Paula. And I think that's sometimes 
so difficult for our patients. Like when you, I love how you brought up with trauma. It's not just sometimes people think of like just early childhood trauma. A lot of our patients have been medically traumatized. A lot of times by the time they get to us, they have been fired from multiple clinics, including sometimes their pain specialist, and then they end up in our clinic, right? And so now we have to help them be able to navigate sometimes with these really complex pain patients that we really have to help them learn to navigate the healthcare system again. And that can be really challenging, but it's like you said, we've got to use all of the resources and being able to help them. Like now, now that we have you stable on medications that sometimes like epidural injections would work for you. They maybe didn't years ago, but that's when you're completely had hyperalgesia and things were out of control. And so like, adverse to anything and really closed off. But that's, I think it's important that we remember that these are really sometimes, like you said, traumatized patients. Can I just say two more things? Yeah. Darlene, one is, and this is, this is highly controversial, especially in the harm reduction arena, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) And that is bringing up the use of cannabis for pain, for the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain. You know, I just don't think we have a lot of enough research to base to base our findings and and pass judgment. Mm-hmm. And we do advocate for patients who are struggling with a substance use disorder to um, to try and have a shot at sobriety, including from cannabis, to help reduce their risk of psychosis, yeah. to reduce their risk of bipolar disorder, to reduce their risk of suicidality, which are all side effects of cannabis. Um, And I know there's an argument for reduced opioid use um, for patients who have chronic non-cancer pain, as opposed to if they have medical cannabis. However, um, there is an article just, again, published in July, 4th of July, 2023. It was reviewed in ASAM Weekly, which is a great publication, by the way. And it's from the Annals of Internal Medicine and um, written by Maginti et al. And it just looks at state medical cannabis laws and if it led to patients with chronic non-cancer pain substituting cannabis in place of prescription opioids or not, basically. And the finding was that there really was not a difference, that the uptake of opioid prescriptions was was the same with with or without cannabis. Question that we get all the time from our patients. And it's when you're dealing with this subset of population, that evidence is stronger that this is not as beneficial for them. At least we can give them that information. And this is just from the scientific data. This is not opinion. The the other thing I wanted to say, and then I'm done with this topic, is that there are some really distressing studies that have emerged around suicide and patients who are tapered too quickly from their opioids or tapered suddenly or cut off from their opioids um, in the setting of chronic pain. And we've all heard stories you and I have inherited many, many patients who were just cut off from their opioids because something happened in the clinic or a doctor got spooked or a doctor left suddenly or a provider and or patient got fired and didn't get appropriately tapered or get offered transition to buprenorphine or to an OTP. Patients are at risk for, for dying by suicide in this setting. And this was discussed in, by NIDA in 2019. And there was a study, uh, there was a paper published in 2017 
by uh, Demidenko. And we must, the takeaway message is we must screen for suicide risk in patients with chronic pain because they have a higher rate of suicide and patients with substance use disorder. And so put that together, it's a higher risk in general. If you take away patients' chronic pain therapy, and if they have addiction, especially, you're putting them at risk. And we must be careful. We've seen this happen in the different waves of the opioid crisis. When we had the first wave with prescription opioids and suddenly OxyContin went off the market and we had this huge transition of patients to heroin and we had the second wave, we had massive amounts of people transitioning to heroin, to street drugs, and a lot of emotional distress and social dysfunction that came with that. And then, of course, the transition of heroin to fentanyl uh, we're having all of these things that are going on around um, huge amounts of mental distress around opioid use. And we don't even know how many overdose deaths are actually intentional. I mean, we we know that, you know, a lot of them are ruled as undetermined and just un overlooked as either unintentional or intentional. But just be careful, always screen for suicide and be aware that it's inhumane to cut someone off from opioid therapy. Either offer them a taper or transition them to buprenorphine or send them into detox in the hospital where they can be supported and someone can do that for you or refer them to an OTP where they can get put on methadone right away so that they're not left to suffer extreme withdrawal from chronic opioids. No, I think that's such an excellent point. It's really interesting that you brought that up, Paula. I was just in a webinar discussion. I think this was two or three weeks ago. And that very question was brought up. And we get this question. We probably had that question probably a dozen times just from our listeners, bringing up these what what we call legacy patients. Patients, You move into a practice, you're the new doc in town, and you inherit all these patients on what we call sometimes, quote unquote, inappropriate prescriptions. And you're the stock going, and and I've been in the same situation myself. You, you've been in that situation, or you're covering for a partner, and you go, I don't prescribe at this level. And physicians are in a tremendous amount of pressure. And I, you know, I don't want to put this all on patients or all on the docs. Like, it's very very tough situation because physicians are really under the microscope concerned about losing your license because you're like, if I write this prescription and something happens to this patient, what do we do? In conclusion, in acute and perioperative pain management settings, if you have a patient maintained on higher doses than 12 milligrams, consider continuing their same dose, or you can, prior to their scheduled surgery, you can taper their dose down to 8 to 12 milligrams and consider TID or QID dosing post-op period, or you can add additional full opiate agonists as needed during that period and then transition over to their regular dose as their pain is controlled. The important thing is to make sure we're achieving um, adequate analgesia. If they are less than on their, if if their maintenance dose is less than eight milligrams, then you can consider keeping them on their maintenance dose up until surgery and then either increasing their dose post-op 
and dosing, changing their dosing schedule the same, and then or adding opi additional opiates if it's necessary. Very similar protocol in acute trauma. Consider sometimes high potency fentanyl, like something like fentanyl. And this would be in the hospital or emergency room setting. If you have someone with a serious, like serious trauma or acute surgery, you still can taper that dose down if you need it. If you have 24 to 36 hours prior to an expected surgery or procedure. In chronic pain management, this is very common with patients who have acute uh, who have chronic pain and opiate use disorder. The most important thing is to think of is use all of the approaches. Look at the type of pain and manage appropriate. So use use all of the tools in your toolbox. There are many resources out there, and we need to think about that carefully and make sure that we are addressing trauma with our patients behavior. And don't forget that you can use SSRIs, SNRIs, tricyclics. Those have significant pain, not just mood benefits for patients, particularly for a lot of the non-structural pain, which is very common with our patients with substance use disorders. Okay. I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Paula. It was a very informative episode. Thank you so much. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.